So how do you become a Christian? Simply by repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray a prayer something like this. This is what's often called a sinner's prayer, a prayer of repentance. Just say in your heart, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've violated your commandments. I have sinned against you. I deserve hell. But I thank you that you're rich in mercy. And Jesus Christ suffered and died on my place. I thank you that he rose again on the third day and defeated death. I now yield my life to you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now pick up a Bible and obey what you read. It is as simple as that. Jesus said, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me will be loved to my Father. I too will love him and will reveal myself to him.
It's a peace that the world cannot give. It's a peace that the world cannot understand. Peace to know. Peace to live. As a teenager, Johnny loved life. She enjoyed riding horses and loved to swim. One summer in 1967, however, that all changed. 
While swimming with some friends, Johnny dove into a lake, not knowing how shallow it really was. She broke her neck, paralyzing her body from the neck down. For the next two years during her rehabilitation, Johnny struggled. She struggled with life, she struggled with God, and she struggled with her paralysis. Since then, Johnny has written 14 books, has recorded several musical albums, and she's actively involved as an advocate for disabled people. On this tape, you'll hear how Johnny, now an internationally known mouth artist, learned to accept her disability. And Johnny will tell you how a personal relationship with God has helped her overcome the obstacles in life, and how you can experience the love of God despite pain and suffering. Now with her life story, here's Mrs. Johnny Erickson Tata. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Do I really do all those things? Yes. My goodness. Yes, but I don't tap dance. I don't tap dance. One of these days, yes, but not quite. It's a real thrill to be with you here at the Inglis House. I've heard so much about this special residential home for so many years, and a visit is long overdue. I hope this will be the first of many, many other visits as well. It hardly seems 26 years ago that I was lying on a hospital bed in suicidal despair, depressed, discouraged. Up until that hot July afternoon when I took that dive into shallow water, a dive which resulted in a severe spinal cord injury which left me paralyzed from the shoulders down without use of my hands or my legs. Before that time, I didn't even know what you called people like me. Who are we? The physically challenged, the mobility impaired, the differently abled, handicapped. I knew we weren't crippled or invalids, but I just didn't have any contact with people who were hurting or in pain. That spinal cord injury changed all that. And there I was, lying on that hospital bed, in the summer of 1967, desperately trying to make ends meet, desperately trying to turn my right-side-down emotions right-side up. In my pain and despair, I had begged many of my friends to assist me in suicide. That seems to be a common topic these days. And many disabled people that I know even in the 90s, have a tough time finding life worth living. And I sought to find a final escape, a final solution through assisted suicide, begging my friends to slit my wrist, dump pills down my throat, anything to end my misery. The source of my depression is understandable. I could not face the prospects of sitting down for the rest of my life without use of my hands, without use of my legs. All my hopes seemed dashed. My faith was shipwrecked. And I was sick and tired of pious platitudes that well-meaning friends often gave me at my bedside, patting me on the head, trivializing my plight with the 16 good biblical reasons as to why all this has happened. I was tired of advice. I didn't want any more counsel. I was numb emotionally, desperately alone, and so very, very frightened. Most of the questions I asked in the early days of my paralysis were questions voiced out of a clenched fist, an emotional release, an outburst of anger. I don't know how sincere my questions really were. I was just angry. But after many months, those clenched fist questions became questions of a searching heart. I sincerely and honestly wanted to find answers. Now, I knew in a vague sort of way that answers for my questions about my paralysis were probably hidden somewhere between the pages of the Bible, but I had no idea where. 
I needed a friend who would help me sort through my emotions, who would help bring me out of the social isolation, who would help me deal with the anger, a friend who would point me somewhere, anywhere, in God's word to help me find answers. I found a friend, a young man named Steve, who knew absolutely nothing about emptying leg bags or pushing wheelchairs, and he had no idea what to call people like me, whether we were physically challenged, differently abled, mobility impaired. Don't you get tired of all those fancy schmancy euphemisms? <laughs> I remember my friend Steve, just a young teenager, who had a caring, compassionate heart a love for God and a halfway decent working knowledge of the Bible. And at my bedside, I cornered him one day. And I said to Steve, I just don't get it. I trusted God before my accident. I wasn't a bad person. This couldn't possibly be a, a punishment for any sin I've done, or at least I hope not. I don't get it, Steve. If God is supposed to be all-loving and all-powerful, then how can what has happened to me be a demonstration of his love and his power? Because, Steve, if he's all-powerful, then surely he should have been powerful enough to, to stop my accident from happening. And if he's all-loving, then how in the world can permanent and lifelong paralysis be a part of his loving plan for my life. I just don't get it. And unless I find some answers, I don't see how this all-loving and all-powerful God is worthy of my trust and confidence. Who is in control? Whose will is this anyway? I said to him. My friend Steve took a deep sigh, and he was wise enough to discern that my question, again, was not voiced out of a clenched fist, but out of a searching heart. He knew I sincerely wanted to find an answer. And so he said, Johnny, those are tough questions, and theologians have been trying to answer them for hundreds of years. I can't pretend to sit at your bedside and, and know why and how. I can't pretend to explain the loving nature of God and how your accident is a demonstration of his power. But when it comes to the question about who is in control and whose will is this anyway, I think I can show you some answers. Huh, well, I wanted to see this. <laughs> and so I waited to see what he would say. I thought he might quote to me the 16 good biblical reasons as to why all this has happened. I thought surely he might lay out before me the blueprint of my life. I thought for sure he'd give me a lot of advice, a lot of a counsel, but no, Steve didn't do that. Instead he opened up his Bible and he pointed me to the example of Jesus Christ. He told me that in the life of Christ I could find the answers about God's will. But he went even more specifically. He showed me Christ on the cross. And he challenged me with a couple of hard-hitting questions himself, saying, Johnny, whose will do you think the cross was? Well, I obediently remembered all of those good Sunday school lessons I had learned growing up. And I easily voiced in response, God's will. Of course, the cross is God's will. Everybody knows that. But then Steve said, Johnny, think it through. Because you better believe it was the devil who entered the heart of Judas Iscariot, who handed over Jesus for a mere 30 pieces of silver. And you got to know it was Satan who instigated that mob in the streets to clamor for Christ's crucifixion. And for sure, Johnny, it had to be the devil who prodded those Roman soldiers to spit on Jesus and slap him and mock him. 
And even the devil inspired Pontius Pilate to hand down mock justice in order to gain political popularity. How can any of these things be God's will? Treason, injustice, murder, torture. Well, I nodded and agreed. None of it seemed to be God's will. But what about all those Sunday school lessons I had learned as a little girl? That the cross was God's plan and purpose for all of mankind. My friend Steve turned to a verse in the Bible which helped answer that question about God's will. He turned to Acts chapter 4, verse 28, and it says there that these men, that is Pontius Pilate, Judas Iscariot, the mob in the streets, the cruel Roman soldiers, these men did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, the cross was no mistake. Somehow, someway, God was in control. Heaven and hell participated in the exact same event when Christ died on that cross. Heaven and hell participated in the exact same event, but for different reasons. Now, no doubt Satan had his reasons. The devil wanted to put an end to this ridiculous talk about redemption. Stop God's son dead in his tracks. No more talk about reconciliation. No more talk about atonement. Kill Christ. That was Satan's motive. But you see, the wonderful thing about God is that he's a miracle worker. And God is in the business of reaching down into what otherwise seems to be awful, horrid evil. And he wrenches out of it. But I got to where I could look up and it was Jesus Christ. He had his hands like this. And the light was just coming from him from all over. And he looked at Satan and he said, this one will belong to me. And Satan screamed and shot down that hall. And I woke up. Jimmy Maxwell's out in the middle of the cell. Tony, man! What is wrong with you? Sweat's pouring off of me. I got the covers tore smooth up on the bed. He said, brother, that's got to be a good one. Let me hear it. I couldn't even talk. I just waved him off. That night I sat on that bed and remembering Jesus and the compassion that he had in his eyes when he looked at me. I thought, man, I'll, I'll just lay down and go to sleep. Now, ain't that, man. <laughs> that devil will be back, amen. I wasn't going to sleep. The next night I was telling Jimmy about the dream. He said, that's so cool, brother. He said, I wish God would do something like that for me. I'd go to church forever. I said, like what? He said, you know, maybe even just pick that TV up and set it down. When he said that, we heard an explosion. It sounded like they were shooting at us. We thought they were. Both of us hit the ground. I grabbed a mattress, man, and Jimmy said, Brother, shoot and look at the hole in the window. And I look over at the hole in the window. It was already there. I told him, Brother, that was there. He said, Tony, look at the light. And both of us look up at the light. There's looked like somebody had taken a ball ping hammer and just perfectly hit this thing dead center of that light. But it hadn't busted and fell out. It just spider webbed all through it, just little bitty pieces. I looked at Jimmy. I said, do you remember what you were saying? How many of y'all ever run from God? Well, some of y'all lying. Amen. How many of you have run from God? Have, I mean, actually thought it was coincidence, counted it up as that. And I'm not, you know, that ain't God. He don't love me. That's what we did. Kind of like Jonah, you know, Jonah was. Man, God warned him to go to Nineveh. You know, how many of y'all know that God has a plan and he's trying to reveal it to you before you even got saved? And he's trying to tell Jonah, I got something for you to do. I want you to go to Nineveh. I got some people that I want you to minister to. I don't like them people and I'm not going over there and doing that. And I'll run where you can't find me. How many of y'all know God can find you? 
he gets out on the boat and they find out this is a man of God and God's mad at him. Man, let's get him out of our boat. Boy, and they chunk him. And here comes the big old fish and just swallows him up. Kind of like the Verizon Wireless commercial, you know. God's going, hey, Jonah, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now, Jonah? And I can hear Jonah, yeah, Lord. <laughs> I hear you now. The Lord says, well, let's look at this situation. <laughs> There's two exits out of this whale's belly. <laughs> Which one do you want to come out of? <laughs> I don't think old Jonah wanted to be fish poop, do you? <laughs> Amen. And you know, that's kind of what God was telling me in all this steel and concrete. I was in the whale's belly. And he, he, that was the first time he spoke to me in that manner. But you know, I'd ask him to. I'd never really heart felt ask God for anything in my whole life. I knew he was there. I just thought that when I was born that God left something out of me that he didn't leave out of good people. I was just destined to be bad and go to hell. My life was going to be a torment until I went there. But I'd never have no peace. God could never forgive me. Let me tell you something. Guilt can be an anvil around your neck if you let it. I was going from prison to prison to prison. My wife was following me everywhere telling me, Tony, please give this lifestyle up. I had gotten so violent inside the prisons that they were afraid of me. They would not leave me on one yard. Today I have people come up to me and say, Tony, I don't see that in you. And that's the greatest compliment that they can give me. Or Jesus. Because it was him that took me out of that miry clay. And set my feet on a rock. Amen. I get to a place where I'd been to McAllister twice. I get to a place over at Connors, and my wife came up one day. She said, Tony, please. I've got bad news. The whole time we've been together, I've been a support for you. I've been somebody that you can lean on. And Tony, I need to lean on you now. My mama's got cancer. They told her she's going to die. Please. Please stand up. I couldn't. I walked out of the visiting room, beat two guys up over a dope deal shortly after that and got locked up and Candy's mother passed away. I couldn't console her. I couldn't put my arms around her. I couldn't, couldn't do nothing to help her. They sent me from there back to McAllister again, a place called H Block. It's an underground prison. The first thing that when you walk down to H Block, you can feel the hate. It's a presence. The The depression, the anger, the frustration, everything, you can feel the evil down there. And I walked into a cell, and the cell that they put me in, I'd been to H Block before, my wife had to come up there and tell me that my father had died. Something that you'd think would change a man, but it didn't change me. I loved my dad. But I walk in this cell, and they'd let somebody go in there with these colored pencils, and this guy had drawn demons on every wall. One wall had a naked lady that was pregnant and a demon climbing out of her belly. Grain graffiti, UAB, Universal Aryan Brotherhood, uh, Crips, Bloods, everything that you could think of, gang graffiti written all over these walls. My wife was writing me letters, but they had gotten, she usually always wrote two letters. I mean, two pages. And her letters had gotten down to where they were like a paragraph. The loss of her mom was devastating to her. I knew that. My kids had started getting a little ornery and wild and out of hand. And her husband was at the McAllister on H Block again. And she had just lost her mom. At the end of every letter, though, they would be kind of incoherent. And at the end, they would say, Tony, please give your heart to Jesus. I was on lockup for 140 days and. the intercom they came on and they said Tony you've got to visit and I go up to visit and I sit down and I look in there and, and it's my wife she's but it doesn't look like her she the loss of her mom had taken its toll on her she had lost more weight she is so skinny this skin and bones her eyes were sunk back in her head and it terrified me and I picked that phone up and started lying I said honey I'll change I'll, 
I'll, I'll be better. I won't do no more dope. I, anything I could lie to her and tell her it was okay, you know, and she just cried. Tears just run down her eyes. The whole visit. Everything I said, it was, just didn't help. It. She just cried. She got up to leave and with her little hands shaking. She said, Tony, please, give your heart to Jesus. Please, Tony. I need you to. She hung that phone up and she left. And I was terrified she'd have a wreck going home. Went back down to my cell and there was a letter there from my kids. And the letter said, Daddy, please. Do something. Mama Kenny. She can't sleep. All she does is cry. Daddy, we're afraid she's going to die. Please do something. And I looked around at these four great walls, this prison I had built for myself, and I never felt so helpless, so alone. In my whole life, that night I tried to go to sleep, and everywhere I looked, a demon was looking back at me. I rolled over and looked at the ceiling, and something hit me, just like a rock. That's something I'd heard in the, in the churches when I was a kid or something, that Jesus was the name above all names. And so I rolled that mattress up. The reason nobody could write nothing on the ceilings because it was way up there. And I got this little short stubby pencil and I climbed up on top of that mattress and, and I wrote the name of Jesus on that ceiling. Crip, blood, everything else was all over these walls, but Jesus was the name above every name. Demons, fear, everything. Jesus' name was above. I laid down and I looked at that name for a long time. And I thought of who he was. I thought of that dream. And I said, Lord, I know that I don't even deserve to call your name out. I know I'm filthy. But my wife has loved you her whole life. Her whole life, God, she's called you out to me. She's always held you up. Please help her. And I said, Amen. And I finally got to sleep that night and the next morning, the guy next door had been on methamphetamine for, for a long time. I was selling this stuff for him, and, you know, he was over there just freaking out. And he, he started kicking that door and screaming that the UAB had sent over a contract on him, and I was supposed to accept that contract and kill him. Big lie. But he had really made himself believe it in this paranoia. And he's kicking that door, and for 30 minutes he kicked that door. And let me tell you, man, I wasn't going to kill him, but 30 minutes of him kicking that door, I wanted to. Amen. <laughs> and the officer came down there and said, Tony, Matt, we got a place for you. And they shackled me up, and I got my stuff. You know, you, everything you own, you own in a little old bitty bag, you know. And, and they shackle you through this beanhole that's down here this time, you know. And, and I'm telling them, just what do you think you're going to do to me? I'm on H-Block. You know, how far down do you want me to go? I'm as low as you can get me. They take me to a cell, and the cell door opens. It's on, it's on death row. The cell door opens, and the first thing I see in that cell is a picture of Jesus Christ. How many of y'all know that God heard that prayer the night before? He says, I've got help for you. I've got help for your wife. One last chance for you, Tony. I could just, you know, I looked in there and I seen that picture of Jesus. And then I seen this convict. Lips touching both ears. He just grinning. He said, you're Tony Mack, ain't you? I said, oh, God. He said, it's not by mistake that you were put in this cell. It's divine appointment. And he said, your family needs you right now more than they ever have. And you need to be stand up and be the man of God that they need you to be. I said, man, you don't understand. You don't understand nothing about me. God can never save somebody like me. He said, he saved me, brother. And if he saved me, he can save anybody. He began to share his life with me. Man, 
I felt like an angel. This guy had been on death row, had gotten off death row, was doing life without, had been on H block since it opened something. Six years he had been in this hole, lips touching both ears, just glowing. For three years he hammers me with, or three days he hammers me with scripture. Finally he gets to a scripture that hit something inside of me. Acts 16.31. You guys know this story. This is where Paul and Silas, man, were preaching and they cast this evil spirit out of this woman. Let me tell you something, man. You can do about anything to somebody, but don't take their money. Amen. And they beat him down. I'm not talking to you, Charlie. Amen. They beat him down. They just beat him, man, and, and both of them and threw him in the inner part of the prisons. I could relate to that, man. I was in a place called H Block in Oklahoma. That's the inner part of the prison. And here they are beaten, blood dripping off of them. They're beaten bad. And, you know, I can't, I don't know if they're on the wall or where they're at, but they're chained up. The word says they're chained up. And I can just hear Paul, hey, hey Silas. Silas over here. Oh, yeah. Paul over here. Let's sing. <laughs> oh! We don't know what they sung. Maybe it was this little light of mine. But it said the prisons and the other cells were listening. The words, I love this part. It says that earth began to quake and the doors flew open. The chains came off. Whoa, I like that. And then he gets to the scripture, Acts 16, 31. You know, the guard came in. He seen them gone, was going to kill himself. Paul and Silas said, don't hurt yourself. We're here. He seen the hand of God. Let me tell you something. If I had been Paul, I'd have probably run over that guard. I'd have probably stuck him on the way out. Amen. I'd have thought Jesus was opening the door for me to get away. But you see, Paul seen the need. So many times we don't see the need. We get excited about something and we don't see the need. We see our own wants, our own desires. Paul seen the needs of this guard. That guard said, what can I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And your house. I said, Michael, you mean that if I just receive God in my heart that my kids will be saved? Who started messing up, you know, and... And he said, brother, it's not a promise from me. It's a promise from God. I said, my wife, she'll get healed. She'll be okay. And he said, brother, just stand on that word. Man, I laid down that night for the first time. God, I'm so dirty. I'm so filthy. I've done so much wrong. Could you really forgive me? He said, I'll cast your sins as far away as the east is from the west. This scripture was just coming back to me. I said, but God, do you really love me? He said, I knew your name on the cross, Tony. I said, but God, I've never been able to quit doing dope. I've tried everything. I went to every class, everything I could do. I've never been able to quit. He said, you never tried me. I said, God, what about my friends? What do they think? What about me? I went to sleep that night, man. Slept a good night's sleep. Woke up the next morning. Michael's over there making these roses. Made them out of toilet paper. I don't know what all he put in them things, but they look real. Lips still touching both ears. Amen. Just glowing. That peace had to come from God. It had to be from him. Right then at that moment, I wanted Jesus in my heart more than I've ever wanted anything. Dope, anything. More than freedom, more than anything. Right then, I wanted Jesus in my heart. I said, Michael, he dropped that rose. He heard the urgency of my voice and he turned around. I said, I want to know the Jesus that sets you free. He grabbed me by the hands and he led me through the sinner's prayer. And let me tell you something, I felt the chains falling off of me like yesterday's news. Guilt, hate, shame, everything, fear just hit the ground. And agape love, Charlie, just started flowing into me, man. 
Tears just started running down my face. I was so happy. I'd never felt this peace. I've got to tell somebody. My cell partner already knows. I look up and here comes this big old officer down the road and I kick the door. Hey, I'm saved. He says, oh my God. He took off. I hear him down the run telling people down there something's wrong with Tony Mack. How many of y'all know for the first time in my life everything was right with Tony Mack? I had to call somebody else. It's December the 11th, 1996. I call my wife, man, and she's gone. I call my mom. Mom answers the phone. I said, Mom, bless her heart, man. She had been praying for this for a long time and hoping for this. When I was a little boy, I used to pick my mom flowers and bring them to her and open the door. And I didn't care who watched. I just wanted to love her, you know. And to see your son go from that kind of boy into the drug addiction and everything, man, it was so devastating for her. And then to get the call that your son had taken somebody's life. And then to find out that in prison that he had become just as violent as the most violent in there. And here she's got this call. And, and I said, Mama, boy, do I got a present for you, Christmas present. She said, what have you done now? <laughs> I said, no, Mama, you don't understand. Jesus is living in my heart. Mama, I'm saved. He set me free. I don't have to go to hell, Mom. I've got a mansion. I'm free, Mom. 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 I hear her on the other end of the phone. Well, that got me. The whole time on the phone, all we did was cry. And this guy, been hearing what a tough guy I've been for 11 years, and here I am on this phone. Ah! I look back there at him, and he's back there. Ah! God shows up and just nails everybody, amen? He began to read the Scripture in me, and Scripture just came alive, man. I told myself, man, I'm going to believe no matter what. Oh, devil, he's going to try to tell you that's a lie. You have to stand up. You have to tell him you're a liar, devil. God's word is true. It's a lamp unto my soul. It's a light for my feet. He can take me through this dark world if I just trust in him and hold his word dear and put it in my heart. I started reading. I, started, I thought this anointing was Michael's. So I write a letter. Man, I don't want off here until you let Michael off. They come over that intercom. They said, you sure about this? They wasn't used to getting a letter like that. Everybody wanted off H-Block. Amen. I said, you know, I've never known this kind of peace. I don't want to off here until you let Michael off. One month later, we prayed. One month later, they come over that intercom and said, we don't know how you guys did it, but pack your stuff. They moved Michael, still in McAllister, but it's not in this underground prison anymore. It's, they moved him to a place called F. Cell House. They moved me to a place called Seaside. Man, I was scared. I didn't want to get away from Michael. I'd never had this peace, this joy. I get down to Seaside, C1, and it's, the, it's, a, the, it's like the ghetto of the prisons inside the prison. And I get down here in the cell open, and I smelt this cell before I walk into it. I get in there, there's a guy on the top bunker looking at me. He's got hair like this, man. He did not own a bar of soap, toothbrush, toothpaste, comb, anything that you would clean yourself. No kind of cleaning supplies. This room was nasty. There was trash stuffed under the bunk, under the, under the desk, and his sheets were almost black. Nicotine stains where you could, where you could see them dripping from the humidity down the wall. Toilet stool was right there. Man, I don't want to look. But I looked and it was green, had green moss all around it, and green moss in it, and I flushed it and it just done the wave, you know. <laughs> How many of y'all know every time God does something powerful in your life, the Satan's right there to try to steal it? Some of you think you're so holy that he leaves you alone. Let me tell you something. He didn't leave Jesus alone. What makes you think he's going to leave you alone? And he was right there on my shoulder telling me, you ain't saved. Who do you think you are? That was Michael's. That ain't you. The same very thing that I was afraid. Guess what he was telling me? That was Michael's anointing. That ain't yours. You're not saved, man. 
I was so devastated I just sit down on that bottom bunk and looked at this nasty cell. Found out later this guy hadn't been out of the cell in four months. Four months he's lived in that cell, no shower, no nothing. That night I turned the light off and the room began to move, man. I got back up and turned the light on. I'm stepping on something on the floor and I turned the light on as cockroaches. I had never seen this many cockroaches in one place in my entire life. I look all around. It was needless to, work, to, to try to move them out or kill them or anything. There's too many of them. I look up at him and he's got his mouth open. They're just crawling on him, man. I pull my mattress out. You got two brackets that hold your bunk against the wall. And I pull my mattress out all night long. I'm flipping them off of me, getting madder and madder and madder. And I'm telling God, God, I know you were there. I know, I know, God, that you saved me. I remembered something that when I was little, the next day, you know, I'm sitting on this bunk in the next morning, and I remembered something that my mom and all the women in my life has always told me, cleanness is next to godliness. Amen? It ain't in the Bible, is it, Charlie? But I can understand how God's a clean God. And if I was him, I wouldn't want to come in this nasty cell either. Amen? So I tell the run man, hey, I need some cleaning supplies. He said, Tony Mack, I knew you was going to want them. I'll get them right to you, man. About that time, here come the officers around. Hey, it's time to shower. Oh, boy, you know, he said, but we ain't got no cold, hot water. It's just cold water. I looked up at him. I said, hey, today's your lucky day. I got soap. I got everything, shampoo, everything. I ain't taking no shower. I said, yeah, you're going to take one in that, in that shower in that green toilet stool, but you're fixing to take a shower. He looks up at me and he says, okay. <laughs> he bells out and he goes to the shower, man. I get my shower and he comes back and, and he looks like a people, man. He cleaned up for, while he was gone. I took him black sheets off, you know, and, and, you know, I'm still empty inside, though. And I remember something that Michael told me. He said, Tony, if you ever get where you feel like God doesn't hear you or you don't know how to break through, sing praises to him. Even when you don't feel like it, mister, I didn't feel like it. And I got to trying to remember a praise song, you know, something that God would accept. And, and I remembered something that my mom had sung to me when I was a little boy. And it goes, oh, how I love Jesus. Y'all know the song. And I've got this, this bucket, man, and it's got soap in it, man, and I've got my scrub brush. And, and I know I've got to start singing, so... Oh, how I love Jesus. But you know, God seen my heart. And he just reached down and he gave me a touch. That agape love. He didn't care what I'd done. It didn't matter where I was going. No matter where they put me, my God was going to be there. And my song got sweet. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. I started shouting. Oh, how I love Jesus. I look up there at my cell partner. He's in a little ball. I'm having me a ball in here, man. I got soap on everything, amen. Looking to be knowing the ugliest man in captivity is looking through there at me. And I loved this guy. He was a neat guy, man. Had a compassionate heart. Tears were running down his eyes. He said, Tony Mack, it's real, ain't it? I said, I've never felt nothing more real, brother. He said, I brought you some dope. You're not going to take it, are you? I said, no, sir. He said, well, take it and sell it and get you some canteen or something. I said, I can't do that. I'd be just as wrong as if I did it. Brother, I can't. I said, if you really want to give it here, I, I'll put it in that now silver toilet stool. Amen. Tears still running down his eyes. He said, man, I've got to go tell somebody. He went and began to spread the word that Tony Mack had found Jesus. and The tough guys, the guy, hardcore guys that were... On the other units, the officers started bringing them to my cell and through this little bean hole we were grabbing hands and I was praying for their mamas, for their children. 
Some of them had mamas that were dying and they come back to me and telling me that and God healed her. He healed her, Tony. I didn't know how to pray. I just poured my heart out to God. Men were coming to my bean hole and I was able to lead them to the Lord right there through that bean hole. My cell partner probably could have stand getting saved. I'd read to him every night from the Bible. But he couldn't stand him three showers a week. I come home one day and he'd moved off. Amen. They moved someone in else with me and I led him to the Lord. A little time passed and uh, two, off, two guys got stabbed severely. One on the unit I was on and one on the other unit got beaten up real bad and stabbed. We went for a couple weeks. They had us locked down. No showers, nothing. We wasn't getting out of the cells. And they come down there to take myself partner to medical man. And when they did, I put my foot in the door, grabbed my sh towel and my little officer says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to take a shower and you're too little to be in the way. And so he got out of the way and I went and took a shower and come back. And I said, God, did I do that without sinning? He said, we got some work to do with you. Amen. <laughs> They brought my cell partner back and told me Prut wants you. Prut was a unit manager down the hall, man, and me and him had a bad pass. So I went down there, man, and I get down there in the office, and, and Mr. Prut tells me, he says, Tony, when I seen your name on the list, you were coming from H Block. He said, I was going to move you. I wasn't going to let you come to my unit. I was going to send you back. And something happened, and you slipped through. How I many of y'all know what happened? Amen. He said, I've been hearing about men coming to your cell, Tony, and being saved. I've been hearing about officers looking through your door and you reading the Bible all hours of the night. I've been hearing about you smiling instead of gritting your teeth. He said, I want to put you in that job over on, on two quad. He said, they've stabbed or hurt everybody we put over there. But he said, I think you could straighten it out. I said, can my cell partner go? He said, yeah. I get over there and I'm out telling everybody, they've messed up now, Charlie. I can tell everyone about Jesus, amen, and I'm feeding them and I'm telling them about the Lord, you know, and that night I was in my cell and I'm thanking God for the job and everything. My wife's coming to visit, smiling. Now she's got lips touching both ears, amen. And I'm thanking the Lord for everything. And he said, son, look where you're at. I said, yeah, God, you got me a job. You got me over here on this quad. You, well, you're awesome. He said, son, look where you're at. And I stopped talking and, and I looked at the door and I got up and I went to the door and I looked out the door and I looked up at the light. I'm in the exact same cell where 10 years earlier I'd said, God, show me you're real. And I had the dream. He's such a wonderful God. I remember in a visiting room, I got out of McAllister, I was at a, another prison and I had got to lead so many men to the Lord, I just, God would just come out, that agape love. We got news that my uncle had contracted a lung disease and was dying. He made his way to the visiting room. They wouldn't let him bring the oxygen in for flammable reasons and dangerous and they but they let him come in and he was so frail and so small. He was an awesome uncle. Me and him were so tight. Nobody had ever been able to minister to him. And I went down there and I seen him and I wasn't used to seeing him like that. He would always been a big, powerful man. And I opened my mouth and began to speak. His son was with him and everything that came out of my mouth was Jesus. Everything was just pouring out God's love. He said, Tommy, would you pray for me? And I started praying for healing and in my spirit, God shouted, salvation. And I stopped and I opened my eyes and I said, Uncle Jimmy, do you need salvation? He said, I want to know the Jesus that changed you, Tony, with everything in my heart. And I grabbed him by the hands. I led him through the sinner's prayer. And we were weeping and we were crying. And when we finished, we were just hugging each other, crying. And Uncle Jimmy said, they're going to think we're sissies. 
I said, they can't whip us, Uncle Jimmy. And I looked around, and all these hardcore, tough convicts that were all around us and their families were weeping and crying. He went home to be with the father two months later. He's up there waiting for me. And God is so good. He's so good. I do the prison ministry now, and I'm never, ever happier than when I'm doing something for God. That's when I come alive. When they open the door and let me in, that's when I come alive. And I'm always afraid I'm going to mess something up. But he never lets me, amen? And even if I do, he's got a plan B, don't he, Charlie? Have you lost hope? I don't think so. God's here. He's wanting to meet you where you're at. Whatever need you have. Don't hold back today. Please, give God your heart.